Well, let's open the scriptures to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And <clears throat> we have somewhat of a lengthy portion to read here, uh, starting with verse 51. And we're going to read down through 71. 51 through the end of the chapter. And really, to get the context of what we're reading, uh, you have to go clear back uh, at least to the beginning of chapter 6, but we just can't read all of this this morning uh, because this is where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and that's really the context of what we're looking at here this morning. <clears throat> but uh, I think in, in order to save my voice, I'm going to have someone come read this section. And my normal reader isn't here this morning. Jim Kelly's too far away. So I wondered if Ryan, if you could come up and read uh, 51 through the end of the chapter. John 6, and start in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was who said, Betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him any more. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Well, Jesus had been speaking in this 
section about being the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. And like I say, the, the uh, context really was the feeding of the 5,000. And he was saying that, uh, speaking to these Jewish people, he was telling them that he was far greater than that manna that the Jewish people had eaten in the wilderness because he not only sustains life temporarily, he gives life eternally. Then he said these things about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in order to have eternal life. And many of his followers did not like the statements and they grumbled against them. And many actually stopped following him. Now, that's something to consider, isn't it? His, some of his disciples stopped following him. People who had followed him at least for some time now were turning away. So here we have people who had heard the purest teaching ever heard and seen amazing miracles, and yet they left. They turned away. No doubt some just misunderstood what Christ was saying here, but others probably understood enough, and they just did not want to turn from sin and self. You know, there's certainly much in the teaching of Christ that even rightly understood is offensive to the natural man. And that includes unconverted religious people, which is what these Jewish people were. Some of the things that Jesus says are just offensive to that type of person. Uh, And I would say that even for true believers... The temptation to turn away from following Christ when things get hard sometimes presents itself. We're going to talk about that a little today. But the true disciple will continue on when superficial disciples turn away. That's why Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, truly my disciples. A person that leaves Christ after following him for a while does that because they think there's somewhere else they can go. They have some plan B. They're like the stony ground believers that Jesus talked about in Matthew 13. They heard the word and immediately they received it with joy, but they had no firm root in themselves. And when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, because of the word, immediately they fall away. And I think this surely has to do with the fact that they'd never really seen the sinfulness of their sin or their need for a Savior, their desperate need for a Savior. Those that stay know there's no other place to go. It may be tough temporarily, and they may not know all that God's calling them to, or understand all that God's calling them to, but they know there's no hope, no help, no real answers anywhere else. They know there's no peace of conscience, no power against temptation, no comfort in trouble, no forgiveness of sins, no rest for their soul, 
no hope beyond the grave except in Christ. So I'd like to just take this section here and share some very basic thoughts that came to mind as I look through this. Some thoughts really related to the Christian life as we just see what took place in this account. First, I would say, we should not be surprised to see some professing Christians fall away. I mean, this is what was happening here. Professing followers of Christ falling away, falling away. We're told that many, after following him for a time, withdrew, not walking with him anymore. Even with perfect teaching demonstrated by a perfect life, people found fault with what they heard and turned away. So this should not surprise us when we see it happening. And we do see it happening. Next, I would say, we see from this that some people follow Christ for selfish, carnal motives. Now, I actually have to go back a little bit uh, in, the, uh, in this section to see that. If you look back at verse 26, Jesus is talking to some of the people that had uh, been following him. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, here were some people that had been fed, some of these 5,000 that had been fed, they really didn't see what Christ was doing and who he was, but they knew they, they, they got some food. And Christ says, that's why you're following. The drawing card of Christianity for some people may be food, might be fellowship, might be fun, might be a host of other pleasant things, and these are not bad things. But unless Christ is really at the center of our affections, when difficulties and disappointments come, we'll find some other place to go. If we only follow Christ for some temporal advantage that we might gain, when earthly disadvantages seem to outweigh the advantages, we'll cease to follow him. I mean that we were following him because of some advantage, some temporal advantage. If we don't have it anymore, well, I'll try something else. I mentioned earlier that people with a plan B will fall away. Actually, it seems to me that if we have a plan B, God has included enough difficult things in his word to make us go with that alternative route. He's just set it up that way in his word. For instance, in this account right here that we're looking at, Jesus knew that his Jewish followers would be offended by these statements about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Drinking blood was specifically condemned in the Old Testament. And this would be doubly true, a doubly an offense, to talking about drinking human blood. But these Jewish disciples should have trusted enough in the wisdom and righteousness of Christ to know that there must be some good and God-honoring explanation of what Jesus was saying. But they did not, 
because they were superficial believers only following him for temporal benefits they might receive. Such people will stumble over the words and ways of Christ at some point and turn away from following him. Next, from this section, I think we can see that some of Christ's sayings are hard to receive. Eating flesh, drinking blood. Some are hard to understand. Some are hard to believe. Some are hard to obey. And the only way to rightly handle these truths is to humbly receive them, seeking help to understand and grace to obey. We should always realize that much of our difficulty may be due to our present ignorance and lack of spiritual understanding. The problem is not with God's word. The problem is with us and our interpretation of God's word. Along that same line, we must be careful about putting some carnal, superficial meaning on spiritual truths. Jesus tells these people, right in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Many errors in professing Christianity come from putting some natural, worldly meaning on spiritual truths. The unenlightened mind is taking something that Christ says, something that God's put in his word, and putting a worldly understanding upon it. That's actually happened with this section many times, and I think probably the clearest example of it would be in the Roman Catholic Church that has used this teaching of Jesus right here in this section to say that Jesus' literal body and blood are being eaten and drunk when the Catholics take part in their Mass. Jesus was using a metaphor here when he spoke of these spiritual things. Eating and drinking refer to our spiritual our spiritual appropriation of the work of Christ. Our spiritual appropriation of the effects of his sacrifice on the cross. We must feed on Christ to have life. This is what he's saying. We have to feed on Christ continually. He's the bread of life. If you're going to have life, you have to take in that bread. You have to feed on him continually. But people often try to understand these words in a literal carnal way, and it leads them into error. We also see from this section the proper response to things that are hard to accept in the Scripture. We may not understand certain aspects of God's teaching, but as Christians, we've seen enough of the reality of Christ's words and ways to continue with him. You see, Jesus taught back up here in verse 45. We, Like I said, to really get... Uh, to understand this section, you've got to look at the big context. But he said, It is written in the prophets, 
and they shall all be taught of God. They shall all be taught of God. If you're truly a Christian, God has begun to teach you. He's shown you something of who Christ is. Now, the people that continued on with Christ knew something of who he really was because God had taught them that. The ones that fell off, fell away, hadn't seen it. They hadn't been taught of God. But Jesus says, they shall all be taught of God. You cannot become a Christian without being taught by God who Christ is. We know that there's no life and teaching like His anywhere else. If you're, if you're a Christian, you know that. And this is what this is what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now what I'd like to do here is just quote a compilation of thoughts from J.C. Ryle. These were from a number of paragraphs and I just kind of put them together. But I thought these are so many good thoughts that uh, he could express much better than I could. So let me just read these thoughts from J.C. Ryle. He says, Grant for a moment that in an hour of weakness we listen to the temptation to go away from Christ. In what respect shall we find that we have increased our happiness or usefulness? What solid things shall we get to replace what we have left? Once turn your back on Christ, and where shall you find peace for your conscience, strength for duty, power against temptation, comfort in trouble? support in the hour of death, hope in looking forward to the grave. These things are only found by those who live the life of faith in a crucified and risen Christ. What fruits can the advocates of non-Christian theories and ideas and principles point to with all their cleverness? What holy, loving, peaceful quietness of spirit can they do they exhibit? What victories have they won over darkness and immorality, superstition and sin? What successful missions have they carried on? What countries have they civilized and brought morality to? What populations have they improved? What, what self-denying labors have they gone through? What deliverances have they wrought in the earth? You may well ask these questions, you will get no answer. Surely, it is wiser to cling to Christ and Christianity with all its alleged difficulties than to launch on a sea of uncertainties and travel towards the grave, hopeless, comfortless, comfortless, and professing to know nothing at all about the unseen world. He, said, he goes on to say, Give me the religion of texts and hymns and simple faith which satisfies thousands rather than the dreary void of speculative philosophy. Where in the world, where in the world shall I find a more excellent way than that of faith in Jesus? 
Where is the personal friend who will supply his place? To whom shall we go? Only Christ has words of eternal life. Well, J.C. Ryle. Next thing I would say from this section is that we see the perfect knowledge of Christ has, that Christ has of the hearts of men. We see God's, Christ's insight into all of our hearts. Um, we see that in verse 64. But, they, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, these that, these that turned away, and who it was who would betray him. Of course, there he's speaking about Judas. He knew that some of these people were following him for the wrong motives and were not truly trusting in him. And he knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. One thing we can learn from that is that hypocrisy is folly. Christ sees right through it. It's far better to be weak and real than to be thought strong and be false like Judas. For the real Christian, this truth of Christ knowing our hearts perfectly is actually a great comfort. Others may misunderstand us, and we often cannot even verbalize what's going on in our own hearts because we don't really understand ourselves very well. But God knows us and can speak to the needs we hardly know we have. So it's a wonderful thing to know that Christ can see right down on the level of every need and everything that's going on with us. We also see from this passage that great religious privileges do not mean that we know the Lord. Judas was more privileged than many, most men, more privileged than most men. He was a chosen disciple, a companion of Christ, a witness to the miracles, and perhaps even a worker of miracles. He heard divine truth from God's incarnate Son. He was certainly in a most favored position, yet he was not saved. In fact, Jesus said he was a devil. You see that in verse 70. Have I not chosen the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus says in other places, it would be better for that man if he had not been born. The light that was in him was darkness, and how great was the darkness. So what's that mean for us? Well, that means we need to ask God to open our eyes, lest the many privileges that we have turn out for our greater condemnation. And I would just say this to the children. You have, you have many privileges. First of all, you're born in a nation where the gospel goes forth uh, freely, as opposed to many places around the world where that's not the case. Secondly, you're being, you're being raised in a home where the gospel is presented. Third, you're going to a church 
where by the grace of God you're hearing truth. These are great privileges, great advantages, you might say, that God has given to you. But you have to trust Christ. You have to walk with Christ. If you don't, those very privileges will turn out to be for your greater condemnation. But this is true for all of us, not just for the children. We're also taught in this passage that if anyone, and by anyone I mean you and I, actually does believe and come to Christ and continue to follow Him through thick and thin, it's because of the grace of God. See that in verse 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. Unless God has graciously granted that, you're not going to come. Grace does more than just provide a way of salvation. God graciously opens our eyes to see that way and empowers us to walk in it. Jesus had emphasized this again previous to the section that we read. Verse 37, chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 45. And uh, verse 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then we read this one. It is written in the pro- it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So the grace of God opening our eyes to the way that he's provided in Christ and then enabling us to embrace that way. Next, I would say that in this revelation of Christ to our souls, we see the, the fact that, that this revelation is progressive. When Jesus said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I don't think he really understood much of what that meant. He knew that Christ had taught often about this subject of eternal life. In fact, just in this uh, section here in in chapter 6, you see him emphasizing this over and over again. Verse 27 Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Verse 40, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. Verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 57. 
As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. In verse 58, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. But you see, when Peter and the other disciples heard these things, this was before the crucifixion. This was before the resurrection. This was before the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. At this point, Peter did not understand that Christ had to give his life for the world for there to be eternal life for anyone. Jesus said it, uh, verse 51, I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. He said it, but you know Peter didn't understand it. I know, I, I know for sure he didn't understand it because just right around this time, Peter actually rebukes Christ for saying that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed. Remember that? He did not understand how Christ was going to give his life for the world. In fact, Jesus even said to him, Get behind me, Satan. It was such a wrong statement by Peter, such a lack of understanding of the way of life. So, I say, Peter really didn't have much insight into the way of eternal life that uh, would provide salvation for mankind. And I, I doubt if he really understood these things about eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood, bringing eternal life. But he knew there was no other place to go. No other place he could go for understanding these eternal truths, but the one that was telling him these things. There were many things that Peter and the other disciples that, that stayed, the ones that stayed with Christ, did not understand. At least at this point, they didn't understand these things. But they did understand that Christ was sent by God and they received his word as best they could and God progressively showed them more and more truth. This is the point. God will progressively show us more and more truth. It's a progressive thing, understanding what it means to be saved, understanding what it means to be a Christian. There's so many things about the Christian life that we just, we, we just have to continue on with Christ to understand. If we will receive his word, even the hard-to-understand parts, Christ will show us more and more of himself and open our eyes more and more to his truth and what he has for us. And there is so much more to know. I mean, if you don't think there's a whole lot more to know, uh, I don't know what you're thinking. You know, even even like this thing of eternal life, we talk about that. But we don't understand that. We just barely, we barely scratched the surface of realizing what we're talking about when we talk about eternal life. But God will progressively show us more and more as we walk in the light. 
many of the doctrines, many of the teachings of the Bible are incomprehensible and inexhaustible. I mean, you're just, well, just think when we use that word eternity. You do not know what you're talking about, and I don't either. I mean, we have a little idea. And the same with life. When we're talking about eternal life, life in a situation where there's no sin in us and no sin outside of us for eternity. We don't know what that's like. Well, anyway, the point is that God does progressively show us more and more as we walk in, in the light. Then the last thing I would say is that in these days when the so-called new atheists continue to ridicule Christianity and unbelief is advancing in our country more and more and Christian morality is mocked more and more, Christ may well be asking some of us, like he did the twelve, Do you want to go away also? You do not want to go away also, do you? I hope that we've seen enough of the glory of God in the face of Christ that we can say like Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. If you've seen Christ at all, you you can say that. If, if, you, if you've been taught by God at all, you can say, there's nowhere else to go. I may not understand a lot. I may not be able to answer some of these things that are thrown at me. But I know this, there's no answers anywhere else. May God be pleased to grant each of us increasing revelations of himself in these days. I certainly believe that as we continue to feed on Christ, which is what Jesus was talking about here, as we continue to feed on Christ, God will continue to feed us and teach us. For the Christian, there is no plan B. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you've taught us enough to know that there is no other place to go. We pray that you continue to show us more and more of the wonder of what is involved in the gospel and what it means to feed on Christ. We ask that you use us in this world to show people something of the reality of the work that Christ can do, what grace can do, what grace has done. And uh, we be people who proclaim the excellencies 
of the one who have called us, of the one who's called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Help us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name.